Simeon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. This morning we plan to examine the character of God so that we will more fully experience his grace and peace. If there are any two things that believers should endeavor to experience, it's grace and peace. If there are any two things that believers ought to endeavor to extend to others and help them enjoy, it would be grace and peace. So again, our hope is that having examined the character of God, we would enjoy the grace of God, that we would enjoy the peace of God all the more. I expect that for each of you, whatever your week has held, it has provided opportunities to not only forget about God's grace, but maybe even to abandon God's grace, to become disgruntled with what you have been granted in life, maybe even to find a disinterest in the peace of God. Maybe you have found conflict with someone to be of such focus that the peace of God hasn't even entered your mind. I expect that those temptations have arisen in your heart. Uh, that's not unusual that we as sinners saved by grace and granted peace when confronted with the difficulties and the normal circumstances of life, would tend to forget about grace and even forget about peace. I want to share with you what I believe we will see in this text together this morning. Point number one, the messenger of the only saving faith. I want you to see the character of the messenger of the only saving faith. Point number two, the necessity of the only saving faith. Third, we'll see the source of the only saving faith. Fourth, we'll see the results of the only saving faith. And five, we will see the enjoyment of the only saving faith. Again, point number one, the messenger of the only saving faith. This messenger's name is Simeon Peter what he calls himself. Simeon is the Greek transliteration of the Hebrew name. In other words, the Hebrew name pronounced Simeon had no Greek equivalent or no Greek translation, so they transliterated the Greek name, meaning they made up a word that doesn't exist or didn't exist, and so it sounds essentially exactly the same as it did in the original language. That's what a transliteration is. It's when you take a word from a language that has no equivalent in another language and you say in this other language, we're going to say it just like they say it in that other language. And so phonetically, it's the same, essentially. But still, it was his old name. Simeon, or Simon, was his birth name. It was his unregenerate name, and it represented his days as a proud Jew whose only interest was catching fish. In Mark 1.16, we read, as he was going along by the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net in the sea, for they were fishermen. So Jesus observed this unbelieving, unregenerate fisherman who had not received grace nor enjoyed peace. Peter, Petras, was the name that Jesus gave him when he appointed him as an apostle. A Greek name, a common Greek name. 
In Mark 3, verse 16, we read, And he appointed the twelve, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter. This was not his name, and Jesus made it his name. There's a transition, and you really see this unfold in Matthew 16, beginning with verse 15. Jesus said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. I also say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. Jesus, of course, delivers a statement here that reveals the significance of who Peter would be to the Christian church, not the first pope. There's absolutely no indication of such silly talk, but that Peter would, in fact, be a father within the church, that he would be a a key holder to the Christian faith, that he would simply be a messenger of truth, and that those who would repent and believe in the gospel, would experience the blessing of doing so through Peter's faithful teaching and his faithful ministry, his faithful shepherding. This is in reference to the compound name Simeon Peter. Peter would refer to himself in his second letter by Simeon Peter, but not in his first letter by Simeon Peter. He only refers to himself as Peter. Is an expression of perhaps some continued spiritual growth that allows him to be willing to call attention to his old life. Simeon was not a good man. He was an unregenerate man, unable to lift himself out of that unregenerate state. Peter, though, had been saved by the Christ. So Peter had no problem pointing to the insufficiency of his condition as Simeon and the kindness of grace and peace granted to him through Christ when he named him Peter Alexander Nisbet says, It is very necessary to carry with us to the end of our time the sensible remembrance of what we were before Christ manifested himself to us and of what his grace has made us, that we may go to heaven both humble and thankful. So Peter bears no shame in remembering his past, for Christ bore it for him, so he can look back with gratitude for the man he no longer is, while being humbled by what Christ has done and who he made him to be. Peter was humbled by what Christ and Christ alone could accomplish. Peter could take no credit for his regenerate life, just as he could take no credit for his name. Jesus gave him both. He refers to himself as a servant of Jesus Christ. This is the term that many of you have become well familiar with, that term doulos, and it really means slave. Kenneth Wiest has said about this, sinners are born into slavery to sin at physical birth and into a loving, willing, glad servitude to Jesus Christ by regeneration. The word referred to one whose will is swallowed up in the will of another. Before salvation, the sinner's will is swallowed up in the will of Satan. After salvation has wrought its beneficent work in his being, his will is swallowed up in the sweet will of God. The word spoke of one who is bound to another in hands which only death can break. The sinner is bound to Satan in bands which only death can break. 
in the case of the believing sinner, his identification with the Lord Jesus in his death on the cross broke the bands which bound him to Satan. Now the believer is bound to Christ in bands which only death can break, but the Lord Jesus will never die again. And since he is the life of the saint, that saint will never be severed from his Lord, but will be his loving bond slave for time and eternity, end quote. It is not only the call, but the hunger of the one to whom Christ has granted grace and peace to be his slave. William Barclay says, to call the Christian the doulos of God means that he is inalienably possessed by God. In the ancient world, a master possessed his slaves in the same sense as he possessed his tools. A servant can change his master but a slave cannot. The Christian belongs inalienably to God. But Peter also refers to himself as an apostle of Jesus Christ, not only a slave, but an apostle, specifically, directly, and personally commissioned by the resurrected Christ to preach the gospel, an authoritative founder of the church. In Ephesians 2, beginning with verse 20, Paul speaks of God's household having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. You see, the apostles laid the foundation, and so there's no need for apostles today, and that's why there are no apostles when John died, the last apostle died, there were no more. There are those, as you know, who refer to themselves and proclaim themselves to be apostles, but they're not. Are we all apostles in a sense? Well, if you look at the literal meaning of the term apostle, it is to be sent. It is to be a sent one. But in terms of the office of apostle, there are none today. So Peter spoke with humble authority when he referred to himself as a slave but also as an apostle. Now, you're not an apostle, and I'm not an apostle, but we should follow Peter's example to the degree that we can. We should think of ourselves and present ourselves as slaves, slaves of Jesus Christ. Isn't that the very best we can do, to present ourselves at the feet of the one who washed feet, to decrease so that he might increase? To serve the one who said he came not to be served, but to serve. And to serve those for whom he died. So this is the messenger of the only saving faith. He's famous, but he has no interest in fame. His only interest is in calling upon the Lord Jesus Christ to whom he looks for peace and for grace. To think of him as his king, his master. To serve him as a slave. And with equal fervor to declare with great authority as an apostle the sufficiency of his word and specifically the power of his gospel. Well, point number two, I also want you to see the necessity of the only saving faith. The necessity of the only saving faith. Having looked at the messenger of this only saving faith, now I want to give you a clue as to where I got that phrase, the only saving faith. The necessity of the only saving faith is shown to us, continuing in verse 1, where Peter expresses those to whom he's writing. To those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours. 
The recipients of this letter are the same as the recipients of Peter's first letter. Chapter 3, verse 1, he says, This is now the second letter that I am writing to you, beloved. In 1 Peter 1, beginning with verse 1, Peter declares to whom he's writing, same group that he's writing to in 2 Peter, where he says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. And they have received a faith of the same standing as Peter. Those to whom he wrote in 1 Peter, those to whom he writes in 2 Peter, they've received a faith of the same standing. They've been granted belief. And I believe here he's referring to the apostles when he says ours. Who else would he be representing except those with whom he has operated as an officer, as a leader, as a pastor, as a shepherd, as an apostle within the church? He communicates to them that we have no better faith than you. Our faith is not a higher faith. It's not a greater faith. It's the same faith. There's no disparity between the faith of the apostles and of the believers to whom Peter writes. It is equal. And why is it equal? Because it is granted by the one true God on the basis of grace, not merit. In Galatians 3, 27 to 28, Paul gives us some insight into this where he says, For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Leveling the spiritual playing field amongst those who have received grace. In John 17, verse 6, we read, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. This is his high priestly prayer, Jesus speaking to the Father. And then in verse 17, he says, sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. So as he speaks of manifesting the Father's name in the world, speaking of those the Father gave to him who keep his word, he now prays for their sanctification, for their spiritual growth that would come by way of the Bible. And in verse 19 he says, and for their sake I consecrate myself. Just a little side note here. Just a side note. If you're struggling in sanctification, if you're struggling in overcoming sin, remember this. Remember that Jesus himself sanctified himself for your sanctification. Not that he needed cleansing, but that he would separate himself from anything that might defile him or anyone who would follow him. That they also may be sanctified in truth is why Jesus set himself apart. And then in verse 20, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. Again, equality for all who have received grace. I'm not only asking for those who are here today, those who are in Christ today, but for all those who will believe. In Acts 13, verse 38, Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and by him everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. You see the equality of spiritual growth potential 
There's no greater faith given to those who teach, those who lead, those who are in positions of honor and of public awareness. Everyone is granted freedom from sin equally, not by the law, but by grace. This faith or this believing is received because it is granted. Paul clarifies this for us in no uncertain terms in Philippians 1.29 where he says, For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. The person devoted to a man-centered theology groans when hearing such verses repeated and says things like, here we go again. But this is the truth of who God is and what he has accomplished. He has granted this faith, and he has granted it as an equal faith to all those to whom he has granted it, because he grants it by grace. In Ephesians 2, verse 1, you were dead, Paul says, in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. It's a gift. It's a gift of grace. Believing in the Lord Jesus Christ is in and of itself a gift of God. How do we know that? Because we were dead, unable to cause ourselves to be redeemed. From the Old Testament in Ezekiel 36, listen to what God proclaims as what he has accomplished and does accomplish in the heart of the person whom he saves. Ezekiel 36, 26, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. That's a sovereign work of the God of grace who grants belief immediately to the person to whom he gives life by grace. In Romans 11, verse 7, Paul says, What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear, down to this very day. And because they have eyes that do not see and they have ears that do not hear and they have hearts that do not feel, they do not believe what God says about them. And therefore, they believe in many cases that they've brought themselves to Christ, resurrected themselves from the dead. But listen to how Jesus refers to this issue in Luke 10, 22. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father, and who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal him. Turning to the disciples, he said privately, Blessed are the eyes which see the things you see. For I say to you that many prophets and kings wished to see the things which you see and did not see them, and to hear the things which you hear and did not hear them. And so they sit in blindness, 
and deafness and in death, and they reject everything that is of any substantial depth regarding the person of God and his work. Peter, when criticized by the Judaizers for eating with the uncircumcised, happily reports that God saves Gentiles too. In Acts eleven seventeen. if then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? He's defending himself against the Judaizers who said, how dare you eat with Gentiles? When they heard these things, they fell silent. The religious hypocrites fell silent. And they glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. God saved those to whom Peter was speaking. They acknowledged that it was not necessary to be an ethnic Jew to be saved, knowing that Peter's teaching was true and of the Lord. They were persuaded by gospel-saturated teaching, and they themselves declared not only that they had repented and believed in the gospel themselves, but that Gentiles have also done so. Why? Because God granted them repentance that leads to life. God granted it. And this, friends, is the only saving faith. The faith of a man-made, man-centered theology is a false gospel. Charles Spurgeon frequently referred to it as heresy. Find a hard time finding a theologian today who will call Arminianism heresy. But it is. It is. Peter says in 2 Peter 2, verses 1 through 3, But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their sensuality, and because of them the way of truth will be blasphemed, and in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Mark it down, friends. Mark it down somewhere on your note sheet or in your mind. Somewhere, mark it down. The person devoted to a false theology and wants to communicate that false theology to others is fraught with immorality and internal sin. And he typically does a great job of pretending that he's not. He's committed to the satisfaction and the gratification of his own sinful flesh. But the hypocrite slips in. And Jude warns us of this, just as Peter is warning us of this here. Now, what do we do with this? We keep preaching the gospel. And we keep pleading with others to challenge us to be faithful to the gospel, not simply with our words, but in the quietness of our own minds and the quietness and privacy of our own homes. Where most people don't see, but some do, and tragically become desensitized. It's not love, and it's not grace, and it's not a manifestation of peace to allow someone who's committed to a man-made theology, whose life is clearly rampant with unbridled sin, despite the fact that he hides it well publicly. It's not love, it's not grace, certainly not peace. In chapter 2 of 2 Peter, in verse 14, Peter says, They have eyes full of adultery. 
recently a company who's well known by its website whose tagline is life is short have an affair was hacked and thousands upon thousands of men and a few women were exposed for pursuing that website for the specific purpose of committing adultery. And the tragic reality is that this very day, one Christian blogger reports that at least 400 men will stand in their pulpits today and confess their sin and step down from their pulpits, from their churches, because of being exposed. But the greater and far sadder reality is that there are a whole lot more than 400 men who should be doing that. And it's easy for you and me to sit here and shake our heads and say, how does that happen? I'll tell you how it happens. Because of a casual, flippant commitment to the Bible, a willingness to allow for and even endorse false theology. I went to seminary with a guy who has since put together a, a blog called Theology is Life. Now, he doesn't mean, nor do I mean, that life is bound up in communicating theology in such a way that makes people impressed with knowledge. But genuine theology, theology that sinks down into the fabric of who we are, changes us. A man-centered theology never changed anybody into a godly person. It never changed anyone. It never convinced anyone to have a deep and passionate hunger for the person of Christ. Why? Because it's not who he is. Jesus didn't get the ball rolling so that you would pick it up. Jesus' death on the cross was not a gamble. He didn't die a death that potentially provided propitiation. It certainly provided propitiation. And friends, this is the most fundamental theological issue of the Christian faith. Do we believe in a true gospel or do we allow ourselves to be satisfied with a false gospel? What will you do in the privacy of your own relationships? What will you do in the privacy of your own relationship with the Lord? Will you embrace the challenge from God to think rightly about who he is and what he has done. Again, back to chapter 2, verses 14 and 15. They have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. And what's happened in our culture today is that men have simply grown to the ability to hide it well. And now we're suffering in our society from the reality that everybody does it. And that's not a stretch too much. A dear friend said to me, that 95% of all men in the United States spend time on the internet looking at pornography and the other 5% have lied. And I want you to know that I was graciously offended by that statement because that includes me and it includes a lot of other men who I am deeply convinced are in fact above reproach and do not give in to the temptation to commit adultery over the internet. And my message for you today is not one of harsh, hypercritical judgment of men who do such things. It is a message that grace changes that man. And a man-centered theology doesn't change him. It forces him to change himself. 
It forces him to change his conduct. But a God-made theology paves the way and makes certain a sanctification that provides in a man's heart a hunger for holiness. And that is the only saving faith that exists. It's the only saving faith. Verse 15 says, forsaking the right way, they have gone astray. They've gone astray, forsaking the right way. And you know this from our time in 2 Peter last week, that they were exposed to the knowledge of God. And Peter said it would have been better for them if they had never been exposed to that. Because they're like those in Hebrews 6 who tasted of the Holy Spirit. They committed the unforgivable sin, blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. So there's no turning back. That's not to say that every man, every woman who has committed sexual immorality is hopeless. Obviously, in 1 Corinthians 6, Peter says, such were some of you, and he includes a number of sins. He includes homosexuality as well as heterosexual sin. In fact, the only saving faith saves those who have been rampantly guilty of such sins. Well, point number three, I want you to see the source of this only saving faith. We've looked at the messenger of this only saving faith. We've looked at the necessity of this only saving faith. There is no other saving faith. Now I want you to see the source, number three, of the only saving faith. Just what is this source? Peter says, by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's put that together exactly the way he says it. To those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. You note he does not say that you have obtained or received a faith by your choice or by your prayer or by your decision, but it is by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. You see, the Pharisees of Jesus' day taught that salvation came by works. Justification was a result of fulfilling the law. To their shock and horror in Matthew 9, verse 10, Jesus reclined at the table in the household. Behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. He's eating with sinners. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard of it, he said, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. It's a message of hope for the hopeless who's committed to his hopeless theology. And yet, many still reject it. Why? Because they want to believe that they have somehow, despite everything God says about their innate, natural-born condition, achieved righteousness. This is no small thing. This is no secondary biblical issue. It is most fundamental. In Matthew 13, verse 47, again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. 
When it was full, men drew it ashore and sat down and sorted the good into containers, but threw away the bad. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. See that? Angels will come and separate those who are justified by faith and those who are not. In Matthew 25, 41, Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devils and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you did not welcome me. Naked and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison and you did not visit me. Then they also will answer saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? And he will answer them saying, Truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Contrary to what your Seventh-day Adventist friends think, hell is a real conscious place. And it is eternal, just as Jesus here has said that it is. Now, Paul, in clarifying this matter of an abandonment and an absence of righteousness in Romans 1.18 says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. You see how a man-centered theology can easily be developed in the heart and mind of an unrighteous man who wants to believe that he has achieved righteousness. But what does God say about it? Paul says that God says that the wrath of God is revealed against such theology. Why? Because man suppresses the truth in that condition. It's no small thing. And yet, in Matthew 5, verse 6, Jesus says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Now, hang on to that for a moment. We've already pointed out the consequence of the unrighteous condition and unrighteous conduct in addition to that just a few verses down in verse 10 jesus says blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake for theirs is the kingdom of heaven so there's blessing for hungering after righteousness but we've already looked at more than a few passages that point to the reality that man is not righteous in fact paul says this quite concisely in Romans 3, verse 10, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. You remember in the 80s with Bill Hybels and uh, Rick Warren. So they declared themselves to be seeker-friendly churches. And Paul says there is no such person. There is no such person. Jesus says, the Father draws men unto him because he gave them to him. Paul goes on in Romans 3, verse 12, to say, All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. But rest assured, in many, many religious circles, there will be those who can convincingly persuade others to believe that they have achieved a measure of righteousness. If this isn't enough, in Romans 10, verse 1, Paul says, Brothers, my heart's desire 
and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved, speaking of his Jewish ethnic brethren. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. This is the misguided reality of the man-centered pseudo-theologian. There is a sincerity about him, and maybe even a legitimate sincerity regarding the legitimate one true God. He has some knowledge, Paul says he does. He has a certain awareness of the person of God. Maybe there is some sincere interest in that person of God, but it's without knowledge. He says, for being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. See that? They didn't submit to God's righteousness because they were convinced that their own was plenty good. Verse 4, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. It's a matter of having knowledge, the right knowledge, biblical knowledge. And not twisting it and disabling themselves, as Peter says false teachers have done in 2 Peter 3. To the Pharisees in Matthew 21, 31, Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him, but the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. And even when you saw it, you did not afterward change your minds and believe him. See that? The worst of society in terms of what society determines. Jesus said they went to heaven. Why? Because they believed. And the self-righteous didn't. Matthew 23, 24. You blind guides, straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. This is not unusual for the legalistic person to be so hyper-committed to unnecessary details and yet completely disinterested in the chasmic reality of missing the character of God and what he, by his sovereign grace, has accomplished. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate that the outside also may be clean. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. You and I cannot forget that this is the realistic condition of people who think they're Christians because they made a decision. And they modify their lives. And again, in chapter 3 of 2 Peter, Peter warned us about these folks. 2 Peter 2, verse 20. For if, after they have escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome the last state as become worse for them than the first. For it would have been better for them never to have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. Galatians 1, verse 6, Paul says, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. 
As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. Galatians 1 verse 11, I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. Chapter 3 verse 11 in Galatians, now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. And in Romans 1, 16 to 17, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And this all-important passage, maybe the most important practical passage for us in our delivery of truth to the lost and to those who think they're saved but aren't. For in it, right, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Sola fide. Faith alone. The reformers fought this battle for you and for me and for Christ, and many of them died. They gave us this great phrase, sola fide. Should be cherished in your heart, should be cherished in our church. Anything else is heresy. Acts 16:31, believe in the Lord Jesus, and you shall be saved. Martin Luther said, though I lived as a monk without reproach, I felt that I was a sinner before God with an extremely disturbed conscience. I could not believe that he was placated by my satisfaction. I did not love, yes, I hated the righteous God who punishes sinners and secretly, if not blasphemously, certainly murmuring greatly. I was angry with God and said, as if indeed it is not enough that miserable sinners eternally lost through original sin are crushed by every kind of calamity by the law of the Decalogue without having God add pain to pain by the gospel and also by the gospel threatening us with his righteousness and wrath. Thus I raged with a fierce and troubled conscience. Nevertheless, I beat importunately upon Paul at the place, most ardently desiring to know what St. Paul wanted. End quote. God showed himself to be leading him, winning him, drawing him to the Son in a pursuit of the Scripture. And it was in reading Romans 1.17 that God saved him. He hated Romans 1.17. He hated it. He hated hearing it. He hated those who, who would recite it. He hated those who would preach from it. Luther also says, At last, by the mercy of God, meditating day and night, I gave heed to the context of the words, namely, in it the righteousness of God is revealed as it is written, He who through faith is righteous shall live. There I began to understand that the righteousness of God is that by which the righteous lives by a gift of God, namely by faith. And this is the meaning, the righteousness of God is revealed by the gospel, namely the passive righteousness with which merciful God justifies us by faith. As it is written, he who through faith is righteous shall live. Here I felt that I was altogether born again and had entered paradise itself through open gates. End quote. I do not forget Peter's words here to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with his by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. 
terms that Peter applies to the second person of the Trinity, our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. We've looked and we will continue to look at the salvific reality of the person of Christ, but I want to meditate momentarily on the deity, the Godhood of the person Jesus. In Hebrews 1, verse 8, the Father says to the Son, Your throne, O God, there's a case for deity. And your Jehovah's Witness friends will do everything they can to twist their way out of your willingness to state this passage from your Bible. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. In John 8, verse 24, Jesus says, I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. So they said to him, who are you? Jesus said to them, just what I have been telling you from the beginning. They did not have ears to hear, and they did not have eyes to see. So further in verse 56 of John 8, Jesus says, Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, You are not yet 50 years old, and have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. This is ironclad proof that Jesus is God. I remember speaking to a man years ago who told me that Mary was his God, and I explained to him, reminded him that Mary is dead. Mary is spiritually alive in heaven, but she doesn't hear him and really has no awareness of his existence. But God, on the other hand, the personal God, sent his son, who in fact is God, and he said, I believe Jesus is the son of God, but he is not God. This is a clear, convincing reality, is it not? There are plenty of other passages in the Bible that speak of Jesus' deity. The Hebrew term here that is translated into the Greek New Testament means I am. And it is without tense. It is not that it is I was or that I am, or that I will be. It is without tense, and so it represents all periods of time. He is the eternal God. God himself in the Old Testament referred to himself uh, this way as the I am, the great I am, in Exodus 3.14, and of course all Jews would have known that. And so to hear Jesus use precisely the same terminology, in the Greek it would be ego, a me, I am, they would have known that he was claiming to be God. So they picked up stones to kill him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple because it wasn't yet time for his death. So I believe it's important that you and I understand the source of this only saving faith is our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, but it is ultimately really the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. 
It's important that you know this, you believe this, you communicate this. He requires the same measure of righteousness from you and me with which he has existed from eternity past. Why? Because he cannot look on unrighteousness. And you say, I can't achieve that. That's a good start. You're on the right track. But Christ did. And he achieved it as the singular and only source of a saving faith for all those who would believe. Well, point number four, I want you to see the results of the only saving faith. The results of the only saving faith. Now, what is Peter saying to us here? What is he communicating to us? What is the, the takeaway, as some would say it? What's the so that? He says, may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. That's the desire of Peter's heart, that you would have grace and peace in an exponential manner, in an exponential manner, in a multiplied manner, that you would experience grace and that you would experience peace. Not that just that you would rest in having received it at one time, but that it would provide joy for you on a daily basis. See, when God saves someone by faith, that person is a recipient of grace. He has full opportunity, full access to the grace of God. You've heard it before. It's been referred to as unmerited favor, and that's a very good definition. It's unearned. It's the pleasure of God poured out in full upon those who didn't seek it because they couldn't. In multiplied doses. Just enough grace, exactly enough grace, always exactly what you need in every moment. Not just for eternal life, which is the far greater reality. But you say, I, I don't often feel like I have enough grace to overcome my sin. Todd, I just don't have enough grace to avoid sin. Well, there's a sense in which that might be true if you are willfully putting yourself in situations that you know will tempt you. That is a rejection of grace. But it is not so if you are a recipient of God's grace. And you prove that by your willingness to prevent yourself from being in those situations. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 12, verse 8, three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. I expect that under his breath, Paul might have said, oh, fine. I was hoping to hear something else. But of course, Paul acquiesced with a spirit-filled and humble attitude. So he says, therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses. Weaknesses, manifestations of my inability to express God's grace. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. But why? Why does the Lord allow this? Why does the Lord allow and even require of us a dependence upon grace by allowing for and even ordaining such difficult circumstances? Back to verse 7. So, 
to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. It always confuses me as to why anybody doesn't know what Paul's talking about here. It's a demon. God gave Paul a demon, a messenger of Satan. There's no confusion on this at all, and sadly, commentators have written voluminously in an effort to say, I don't know what he's talking about. It's pretty clear. And why? To keep me from becoming conceited. Paul had been taken to heaven and there received specific revelation. And you know of at least two or three books where men have falsely declared that they've been to heaven and they come back boasting. And they say ridiculous and silly things about what goes on in heaven. Paul was scared to death to even talk about it. Afraid he'd become conceited. He was afraid he might get it wrong. Prevent him from becoming proud over that experience. God gave him a messenger of Satan. In John 7, 37, On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. No one at that point received the fullness of the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Uh, Old Testament believers received the Holy Spirit, were even indwelt by the Holy Spirit, but the fullness of the work of the Holy Spirit was about to be manifest at Pentecost. Jesus is saying here, that which I have provided for you is a flowing river. And it's a picture of the access that you and I have to the grace of God. An overflowing river of grace that is never ending and will carry us to heaven. In John 1, 16 to 17, for from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. Most literally, that phrase is grace instead of grace. We read it as grace upon grace, but the more literal translation is grace instead of grace. What's the point? The idea is that the grace that you have received and spurned is replaced with more grace. And you and I in our sinful ways do not rest in the grace of God. God has more for us. Verse 17 of John 1, For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ, and it came in fullness. James 4, 6 says, But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Who's he speaking to here? He's speaking to the weak believer who's been granted repentance, granted belief. He says, remember the grace that I granted you and cling to it. Dive headlong into the river of grace and swim there until you drown with joy. 
Ephesians 1, verse 7, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. God preordaining that his grace would join heaven and earth, that his grace would make all things right, that in God's sovereign plan, that which expresses an absence of grace would one day be replaced with fullness of grace that he has lavished upon us, giving us wisdom, giving us insight, helping us to make known in our hearts and in the hearts of others the mystery of his will, the mystery of the gospel, the gospel of grace. No study on grace would be complete without looking at Ephesians 2 verse 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith. It's not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. After saying in 2 Timothy 1 verse 14, By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. Paul chapter 2 verse 1 then says to young Timothy you therefore my son be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus be strong in grace know and understand the doctrine of grace rest in it be strong in it don't be a spiritual wimp don't let someone run over you with a man-centered theology that defies and denies and rejects grace the necessity of grace the sufficiency of grace he then says in our text, in verse 2, and may peace be multiplied to you. May not only grace be multiplied to you, but may peace be multiplied to you. Peace, which is an end of the war between you and God. In Matthew 5, verse 9, Jesus says, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Romans 12, verse 18, If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. You can't do that if you don't have peace person who believes he brought himself to Christ he earned a place with Christ he chose a place with Christ he doesn't have peace he's good at pretending he does but he doesn't in Mark 9 47 Jesus says and if your eye causes you to sin tear it out it's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched for everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. You know, we often think of the cutting off of the arm and plugging out of the eye as that passage that helps us deal with personal sin, private sin, things that we can't seem to get a handle on. And Jesus immediately launches into a command to be at peace with others. You're not going to be at peace with others as long as you have hidden sin. Where does that come from? Where does the power over that sin come from? It comes from grace. God has granted you the ability. You know this from Romans 6. You're no longer a slave to sin, and if you are, you don't have peace. If you're constantly battling with and never winning the battle against sin, you don't have peace. Life is miserable. You need that peace so you can grant that peace to others. 
You see, you were once his enemy, now seated at his table. But what are the effects of this peace? To have peace with God is to be compelled to be at peace with all men insofar as it depends upon you. There's that desire. There's that willingness. There's a willingness to look back over the the wake of broken relationships and say, what more could I do to be at peace with those with whom I do not have peace? There's a hunger for that because God granted unmerited peace. So should you. Romans 5.1 maybe says it best. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Do you rest in that peace? I'm, I'm going to ask a couple of questions here. One, do you rest in that peace? If you have that peace, do you find yourself going back to the doctrine of justification? Or do you line up your accomplishments? Look at all the things I'm doing. How could someone say, I don't have justification by faith? Look at everything I've done. Or do you just rest in the pure peace provided by Christ? What will you say on your deathbed if someone asks, please help me. I'm desperate. How do I become a Christian? What will you point to? Point to the peace. Yes, the peace that surpasses all understanding, the peace that comes from God's willingness to justify men by faith and by faith alone. Back to Romans 5.1, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. There's a rejoicing in the hope of the glory of God. Because of that peace. The 17th century pastor, Christopher Love, said, But what shall I do? What shall I do? I who want the comfort of my grace to procure it, that I may have comfort answerable to grace. How do I appeal to this grace? How do I enjoy this grace? He says, live more in the exercise of, of grace. That is the ready way not only to increase grace, but to obtain the comfort of grace. It was the apostolic salutation, grace and peace be multiplied. If grace is multiplied, and it will be by exercise of it, then peace will also be multiplied. The work of righteousness shall be quietness and assurance forever. Great peace have they which love thy law and nothing shall offend them, Psalm 119, 165, end quote. How do you apply this multiplied grace and peace? How do you enjoy the source of this only saving faith? How do you rest in the results of this saving faith, grace and peace? Set your mind on grace and peace. Study the doctrines of grace. Study the doctrines of peace. Know them. Read them. Be challenged by them. Subject yourself to them. Be changed by them. Be thankful for them. Be humbled by them. And I beg of you, stop declaring that you somehow bypassed grace to get to peace. And acknowledge that it was only by grace. Point number five, I want you to see the enjoyment of the only saving faith. I want you to see the enjoyment of the only saving faith. We've looked at the messenger, 
the necessity, the source, and the results of the only saving faith. And now I want you to see the enjoyment of it. Peter here uses the phrase, in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. I asked you to memorize for this morning, 2 Peter 3.18, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be the glory, both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. Why? Why would we choose that passage? Because it is the knowledge of God that brings about a consistent exposure to and enjoyment of grace and peace. It is the character of God. The one who rejects the truth of the character of God will not in any substantial measure experience the joy of grace and peace because he is not interested in experiencing the joy of the character of God. The Westminster Catechism says the chief end of man is to enjoy God and glorify him forever. That's a beautiful phrase. In Job 22, verse 21, the King James reads, Acquaint now thyself with him, and be at peace. Thereby good shall come unto thee. A.W. Tozer, in the knowledge of the holy, said, What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. The history of mankind will probably show that no people has ever risen above its religion, and man's spiritual history will positively demonstrate that no religion has ever been greater than its idea of God. Worship is pure or base as the worshiper entertains high or low thoughts of God. For this reason... The gravest question before the church is always God himself. And the most portentous fact about any man is not what he at a given time may say or do, but what he in his deep heart conceives God to be like. We tend by a secret law of the soul to move toward our mental image of God. This is true not only of the individual Christian, but of the company of Christians that composes the church. Always the most revealing thing about the church is her idea of God. End quote. Habakkuk 3.19 says, God the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like deers. He makes me tread on high places. Exodus 15 verse 2 says, The Lord is my strength and my song. And he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him, my Father's God, and I will exalt him. R.C. Sproul said, when we understand the character of God, when we grasp something of his holiness, then we begin to understand the radical character of our sin and hopelessness. Helpless sinners can survive only by grace. Our strength is futile in itself. We are spiritually impotent without the assistance of a merciful God. We may dislike giving our attention to God's wrath and justice, but until we incline ourselves to these aspects of God's nature, we will never appreciate what has been wrought for us by grace. Even Jonathan Edwards' sermon on sinners in the hands of an angry God was not designed to stress the flames of hell. The resounding accent falls not on the fiery pit, but on the hands of the God who holds us and rescues us from it. The hands of God are gracious hands. They alone have the power to rescue us from certain destruction. End quote. Exodus 15 verse 11 says, Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? 
The Heidelberg Catechism says the almighty and everywhere present power of God, whereby as it were by his hand, he upholds and governs heaven, earth, and all creatures, so that herbs and grass, rain and drought, fruitful and barren years, meat and drink, health and sickness, riches and poverty, yea, and all things come not by chance, but by his fatherly hand. All things The psalmist says in Psalm 73, verse 26, My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Matthew Henry said, It was great condescension that he who was God should be made in the likeness of flesh, but much greater that he who was holy should be made in the likeness of sinful flesh. That is a great God. And any lesser God... A man-made God, a man-centered God, does not achieve the only saving faith. It's a counterfeit. Psalm 59, verse 16, But I will sing of your strength, I will sing aloud of your steadfast love in the morning, for you have been to me a fortress and a refuge in the day of my distress. O my strength, I will sing praises to you, for you, O God, are my fortress, the God who shows me steadfast love. Isaiah 12, verse 2 says, My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. You see, this is a God that you can enjoy. I so much want you to see in our text the enjoyment, the enjoyment of the only saving faith, and that the object and the source of that enjoyment is God himself. You may say, what about those who don't believe? How is it their fault? You know, from Romans 2, Paul says, they show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. In John 16, verse 8, And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. This is the work, the coming work of the Holy Spirit that Jesus prophesies will take place. When he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father. And you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. There is no excuse for the unbelieving sinner. There is no excuse. Paul declares it and Jesus declares it here. The work of the Holy Spirit is to bring about conviction of sin and righteousness and judgment in the heart of the unbeliever. And he rejects it. But in Romans 3, 21, we read, But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Verse 27, then what becomes of our boasting? It's excluded. 
By what kind of law? By a law of works. No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. So what do we do? What do we tell the person who clearly has not received grace and doesn't experience peace? Well, we bone up in Romans 10, starting with verse 8. We educate ourselves with regard to what takes place in the evangelistic transaction. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame, for there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Everyone. That's what we tell them, because it's true. How should this affect you? How should this soften your heart and my heart? How can it? How will it? How would it? It won't. It absolutely will not if we only look at this as theological knowledge, not intended to change us. But I believe in Luke 18. I believe in Luke chapter 18. We see the bridge that launches us into a compassion for the lost as a result of growing in grace and peace. Luke 18, verse 9. Jesus also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee standing by himself prayed, Thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. He went down to his house righteous. That's the heart. That's the attitude of the man who has been made just by faith. The heart of the man who thinks he brought himself to Christ is, I did it. Christ got the third base and I brought it home. And he's proud. And he wants people to know what he did and what he said and what he prayed and what he accomplished. And so he imposes an unbearable yoke upon others rather than saying, believe in Jesus Christ. The parable goes on to say, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. But the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Father, we pray that you'd make us humble. I pray that we would be a humble people. That the hard realities, the truth of your word that offends would be known to us 
as the exclusive distinction between Christianity and all false gospels. It is an amazing reality that what offends saves. And what does not offend certainly does not save. So, Lord, we ask that you would make us a humble people, that you would use us to communicate to people the the character of the messenger of the only saving faith, the necessity of that only saving faith, the source of that only saving faith, the results being grace and peace, and the enjoyment of that saving faith, which is you.